On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. One, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, we're excited to share a recent conversation between Amy Wright and acclaimed Nashville-based Americana rock artist, Andrew Leahy. In today's talk, they dig into Andrew's musical journey, which started when he was just a little kid, and they work their way up to the present, where Andrew stays very, very busy. Touring is a hired gun for artists like Elizabeth Cook, leading his own band, Andrew Leahy and the Homestead, who just released a new album titled American Static, Volume 1, by the way. And on top of that, he's a renowned music journalist that's constantly churning out new articles. We're grateful to have him on the show today, and that he was able to share some time with us. And we're excited for you to get to know him a little better. From his living room in Nashville's Germantown neighborhood, here's Andrew Leahy and Amy Wright, only on Diddy TV. Andrew, it's good to see you again. We love you. I love you guys. It's great to see you. Yeah. What have you been up to in Nashville over the past year and a half? Well, like uh, lately, I've been gone. Um, you know, I've been out like, uh, playing a lot with Elizabeth Cook, and we've kind of gone around, like, the, you know, like the perimeter of the U.S. Uh, you know, we played like in New York. We played a couple gigs on the Atlantic Coast. Uh, we played Portland and Seattle. We played L.A. Uh, last weekend, we were in Texas. So I've been, I've been kind of getting back out there. But prior to that, I was home all the time, and I made a couple albums. Very cool. And we're going to talk about American Static Volume 1. And of course, you have Volume 2 coming out next year, but we'll talk yeah. about Volume 1 this time. So when you were out on the road with Elizabeth, did you notice a change in, at all in the audience coming back from being so pent up for a year and a half? <laughs> It's interesting. I noticed a change when my band began playing shows um, in the summer of 2021. You know, at that time, I think like everybody thought that we were out of the pandemic. And uh, yeah, there was this huge surge of enthusiasm um, and kind of like a long, you know, kind of like a long overdue uh, release. Um, and now I feel like, you know, we've been like in it again, like for the last couple months. And so like uh, to a degree, it's been like a tentative, but I feel like those like who like I do come out can appreciate it more having not had live music for a year uh, or more. Yeah. We just checked out Gary Clark Jr. He was here in town and it was so much fun to see everybody, you know, out again, the whole place was full and it was just, it was great. Um, haven't been to a concert like that in a while. It's great for us too. I feel like, um, you know, it, it uh, you know, you know, it's like the past year and a half got us off of autopilot. And then when you get like back onto a stage and, you know, in front of a crowd, you can appreciate it that much more. It's one of the silver linings of what we went through. It like reminds you of how great it is when you just get to go play a show. again. Yeah, I think we all have uh, taken a step back and really realized there is so much to be thankful for. And in our daily lives that we took for granted previously that you could just pop Absolutely. down to see some live music on a Tuesday. And, and now thankfully we're back, back at it, I think. Um, yeah. But let's take a step back because I'm not sure everyone knows about Andrew Leahy and of course your band, the Homestead. 
But let's start with you. Where did you grow up, Andrew? I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, um, and I spent kind of like the initial half of my childhood in the inner city and then like uh, the rest of my childhood in what at the time was kind of like the rural outskirts and is, you know, currently where you'd go if you wanted to go to like a nice mall or something like that kind of area. So I've been to Richmond many times. The Jefferson Hotel, isn't that the one, the big one downtown? It's a lovely hotel. I performed at that, uh, you know, quite a number of times as a high school choir kid. So I was wondering about that. So was, did Richmond have a music scene when you were there growing up? I mean, what was it like to live there from a music standpoint? It did have a scene. It was more of a punk scene. Um, and at the time, I wasn't all that aware of it. You know, like uh, looking back now, I realized I missed out on a really cool thing that was like happening, like at an age where I think I would have like absolutely loved it. Um, you know, but, you know, like by the time I was in high school, I was out in the burbs. Um, and so, you know, like my musical, my like, uh, musical adolescence at that point was more of kind of a classical music one. I was in a bunch of choirs. My mom uh, had been a professional, um, you know, classical vocalist prior to my brother and I coming along. And so I think it was kind of natural of her to get us into that. And I took to it. It was cool. I got to go and, you know, I could travel around. I went to all these like specialty arts camps. I did competitions. I took lessons. Um, that was kind of what got me into like a musical, like a performance. And meanwhile, I was also learning how to play guitar. I began getting guitar lessons when I was six. Yeah, like, uh, we had a piano in the house. And so I began applying what I learned on guitar to the piano um, and began writing songs when I was in high school. So the fact that your mom was somewhat of a professional musician, then how did that sort of play out with you and say your brother? I mean, did it make music really simple for you or was it still really hard to learn guitar or piano? Um, I think um, my mom was you know, great in like, uh, recognizing, I guess, that we had some kind of raw aptitude for it. Um, you know, my older brother, he's a couple years older than me. And so he actually began taking guitar lessons first. Um, and we would leave school every Wednesday and walk to the music store. Um, I think I was in first grade and I would have to wait while he had his lesson. And, you know, at that age, you don't like have any homework and you can't, you know, I had a hard time like occupying, you know, like my energy in my mind while he was in this classroom getting like his lesson. And so I asked my mom if I could have lessons too. And my mom was like, I mean, are you actually going to be into it? Are you actually going to keep with it? And I said, yeah. Um, and I did. It turned out, you know, my brother quit after a while, but I, you know, I got stuck with it. But, um, you know, my mom had had a hard time in her 20s, you know, like turning this, you know, like a major, you know, uh, a college, you know, like a major in voice into a career. I think it's, you know, it's, you know, kind of like uniquely challenging in the classical world. And so every time... I would tell her like, I want to go into music. My mom would kind of like discourage me. Um, and I was a good kid. So I was like, okay, yeah, I guess I don't want to go into this. And it took a long time for me to say, you know what? I love you, mom, but I don't think you're correct in this. I'm going to go into music. Yeah. Good for you. I, I, I play the violin and I sang, you know, in choirs and things growing up. My mom was definitely in that camp. She would say, 1%, 1% of people make it in music. That's what she would always say to me. And uh, yeah, so here we are. We're all in music of some variety, but, uh, but you know. Well, you know, I mean, what it took was, um, you know, my backup plan, which, you know, I kind of came up with, you know, like uh, with the idea of it in high school. I was like, 
if a career playing music like doesn't work, I'll work as a music journalist. And I remember my mom saying like, that's not a good idea either. Like that's <laughs> a hard career to make it, you know, work as well. And it is. Um, and, you know, like I graduated college and just like the opportunities that kind of, you know, came my way immediately were more on the music journalism you know, side of things. And so I was able to get like uh, that career to a really good place. You know, I worked in New York as a music journalist. I worked in like Ann Arbor, Michigan as a music journalist. And I think once I had like worked a couple of years as a journalist and I had, you know, like health benefits and a retirement plan and everything, I realized, okay, like you can climb this hill that like everyone like tells you is going to be hard to climb. Um, you know, but music journalism wasn't the only hill I wanted to climb. And so I think it took me getting to the top of that one to even like realize like, hey, I can go and like try to play music and make that my livelihood. Did you go to college for music? I went to college for English. I went to University of Virginia. They had a good music program, but um, you know, it wouldn't have been like going to Berkeley. It would have been like a much more classically based. Um, and at that point I was already kind of getting out of that. Even though after I graduated UVA, I went to New York and I performed more classical music at Juilliard for about a year and a half until I was like, I'm done with this. This is cool, but this isn't, it was almost more like um, when I'm worried that I'm going to like offend some classical musicians out there. But um, in that world, it was more about like a perfect execution of the music mm -hmm. and like performing it like as it's written every time performing it that way. And that was cool. And I think I was pretty good at it, but um, you know, it just wasn't what I wanted after a while. Like I love, I love playing with my band. I love that we get to like, you know, like adapt our songs like you know like like to like the room that we're in every night if it's like a big space you can like turn up a bit um if it's small like maybe you know like one of like the electric guitarist plays an acoustic instead i like that adaptability um and in classical music i didn't really see that as an option okay i have to get in a wahoo wah right here because <laughs> yeah, i went do. there too and oh you went there yeah i was i was have we talked about that before you know what? It sort of vaguely seems familiar to me, but I'm not positive. And I, I'm, of course, I was graduating. No, I graduated, I should say, way before you did, but, uh, but still was there. And it's a great place. Love Charlottesville. So it is a great place. You know, and I, you know, I had like a band and we played all the frat parties and like the local bars on the corner and whatnot. It was, it was a great, it was a great place. And I got to go to school. I enjoyed college. I was happy when it was over, though. I was yeah. ready to go into the real world for sure. Yeah, I think I was too. I was ready to make some money and just do my own thing and just sort of get out of school, period, at that yeah. point. Well, I haven't like made any money yet, but I am, <laughs> yeah, I'm doing my own thing, that's for sure. So when you got out of college, um, did you immediately start a band? And was that Andrew Lay in the Homestead or was it something else? When I, when I got out of college, I got the offer to go and work as an intern at Spin Magazine. Um, and, you know, it was kind of like a dream job. And, you know, at that time, like Spin Magazine had these great writers. They had, you know, like a Chuck Klosterman and, you know, like a Dave Itzkoff. Um, it was where I, you know, I'd been like reading it like all throughout college and kind of like daydreaming about how cool it would be to go there and intern or work there. So I moved up to New York. I interned at Spin. Um, you know, like Spin Magazine got sold. Everybody either like left or got kicked out. I went to a couple other music companies as a journalist. I ultimately left New York and went to Ann Arbor, Michigan and worked at a website called allmusic.com there as a music journalist. Um, I had like a weekly music column 
you know, with a paper in Washington, D.C. that I just kind of, you know, kept at like from afar as a Michigan resident. Yeah. So I was kind of like exclusively a music journalist for like the first you know half of my 20s or even, you know, the majority of my 20s. And again, I think it took me getting to a good place with that to realize like, hey, I don't you know, I love this. I like I like championing, you know, like bands who could use an advocate, but um, I want to like be the band. Um, and so I moved down to Nashville with my wife in 2011. And that's when I really got into Andrew Leahy and the homestead. And that's where I am still. So when you when you started Andrew Leahy and the homestead, and I know that your music has been compared to a lot of people like Tom Petty and George Harrison, and you, you're very melodic, but you're also classic rock on a certain level. And it, and you're not really stuck sure. in any one genre box. If you listen to your music, it's it's definitely, uh, every song is different. But did you have those influences or is this, this music just that this is what comes out of Andrew Leahy? I think, um, I mean, I was always, I was always into Petty, um, you know, and he's the kind of guy when you're growing up, he's just, you know, always around, mm-hmm. you know, and when I was a kid, he was on classic rock radio and on modern radio with, you know, Mary Jane's last dance and whatnot. Um, but, um, you know, I really like, I really like power pop. I really like melodies that, um, you know, like are pop like melodies, but in the context that isn't, you know, you know, just kind of like straight up, you know, contemporary, like Uber produced pop. Um, you know, when I, when I began playing with Andrew Leahy in the homestead though, I think it could have been the fact that I lived away from Virginia for so long. Um, it was like definitely more of an alt country kind of sound. And then I got to Nashville and like realized I didn't like know anything about country or any of its like uh, derivatives. Um, and after playing live for a number of years and, you know, we would play live, we would play like over like a hundred, you know, like 50 shows every year. I realized that what I was you know, like, uh, drawn to was a louder, more anthemic sound. Um, and that's what, you know, like led to whatever you want to call it. Currently I call it, you know, like a rock and roll, we get like, you know, I get put into the Americana category as well. And I'm fine with that. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, to me, it's just kind of like a contemporary rock and roll sound with a bunch of pop melodies. Well, what is Americana? That's, that's one big question, right? It's to me, true. there's, ro- there's rock in there. There's everything in there. There's, you know, hard rock, there's indie rock, there's bluegrass, there's singer songwriter. It's American. And they've music. been a good community to us for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, a lot of it is just music that's written by, in other words, it's music that's written by artists as opposed to digitally written. Um, right. So I, I've. Right. And we, but I'm not even a big co writer. Like, that's a big part of Nashville. But um, I tend to write pretty slowly. And I think if I'm, or well, I, I know that when I'm put into positions where the expectation is, you know, we're going to go into a room and we're going to come out of it like three hours and have a song. Um, I know that I'm not going to be happy, you know, with that, with that song. So I don't even really co-write. It's um, yeah, it's kind of like all my music and it takes like a year to write one song. I'm just, you know, I'm working on like 20 songs at once. And so I get a lot every year. It's uh, it's you know, definitely at a slow drip pace though. So when did you put out your first album? It depends. What do you want to qualify as my first <laughs> album? Um, because I've kind of cleared the earth of my, you know, like a debut that came out in 2011. I think it came out maybe a month after I moved to Nashville. I'd recorded it prior to uh, leaving Michigan. Um, 
and it was cool. But I think, um, you know, if I like didn't have like the ability, like, well, if it had been like 20 years earlier, it would have you know been like a demo or something. But, you know, given that it was like 2011, I could put it up on iTunes and say like, hey, it's, you know, it's out in the world. Um, you know, but I mean, currently I view my debut as an album called Skyline and Central Time, which came out in 2016. And what, how did your life change after you put out your first album? I mean, it had changed markedly before that because um, I had a brain operation. I was kind of, you know, I was kind of like all good to go on the album. And we had like picked up a lot of like momentum as a band in Nashville. And we were kind of in that Americana community. We were playing Americana Fest at a time when it was hard for an indie band to play Americana Fest. Um, and then I was having all these hearing issues and like balance issues. Um, and it ultimately, um, you know, like I became known that I had an acoustic neuroma, which is a brain tumor on your hearing nerve. And so I had to get that taken out, um, you know, with a craniotomy, you know, just, you know, kind of like old school brain surgery. Um, and I was in recovery for a long time, right? Wow. The better part of a year. And after that is when I made, you know, what I view of as my debut album. Um, and then, you know, kind of got on the road again and began like a repaying all the dues that I had kind of like paid before on the road, but I took like a year and a half break with my recovery. And I learned that you can't really do that when you're a new artist. Um, so, um, I guess my life like changed in that I had a whole bunch of headaches after I put that album out and, um, and I was playing a lot of gigs to like people who, you know, weren't all that interested. I was climbing up the ladder. Well, and of course, every artist does that for the for a time, and you're trying to discover probably how to manage your career in addition to be creative, and that's that's tough. It's tough right. for anyone to do. Um, were you touring just in the U.S., or did you go to Europe and other places? Or at that time, it was only in the U.S. Um, I think right before I released Airwaves, which came out in 2019, I began. Um, you know, playing like a Norway and I generally play Norway every year now. It's, it's become a really good market for me. Um, it's a really, really cool country. Um, and then in addition to that, I've played South Africa. Um, and then I've gone on the cruises like the rock boat and the outlaw country cruise where you wind up playing a gig in like Jamaica or whatnot. But, um, usually it's us and it's just like every pocket and every small town, large place. I mean, I've played like probably like over like a thousand gigs in the U.S. over the past eight years or so. Did you ever see that documentary "Waiting for Sugar Man," where he? No, I've been meaning to about um, Rodriguez. Yes, I've heard, I've heard it's amazing. Yeah, I've heard it's great. Well, it's just so interesting how he puts out this album, and um, one person took the album to South Africa, and it becomes huge. And they all thought that he had died, and, and, and it was the soundtrack of their existence. And he's just yeah. working in the U.S. in Detroit, Detroit I think it was, but uh, had no idea that he was famous in another country. And I always think it's very funny when, you know, you're an artist and you live in one country and, you know, your music might be popular here, but then it becomes really popular in Norway or Japan or some other country. Sure. And, you know, why that country, you know, it's, it's funny. I think it is funny. I think, I think like, you know, with Norway, I think that they, you know, identify me and my music and a couple of, you know, my buddy's music with some kind of like American mentality of like the heartland or like a blue collar work ethic. 
I'm not sure. I think I almost, you know, I get, it's like, I get a lot of points with them, like just by virtue of my living in Nashville, which, you know, like perhaps isn't altogether fair, but um, it's an amazing country. I love going there. I miss it. It's, you know, it's like been like a year and a half, obviously since I've gotten to go, but I'm looking forward to when I get to go there and play all these songs. Got a bunch of like uh, new songs that I think they would like. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the album, and I can't wait to talk about it here in just a couple minutes. One quick question, question before we do, though. You collaborate sure. with a lot of other artists, and you even play on, on their tours. Um, what is it about that that is really fulfilling to you? Well, I love that. Um, you know, I, you know I, like, I just got home yesterday like, from an Elizabeth Cook tour. I play in her band, and I have since the week that Tom Petty died. So that would have been uh, early October 2017. Um, and with her in particular, I'll use uh, her as an example because it's, you know, it's like uh, my best example. Um, I think it helps with anything. Um, if you can like put yourself in another person's shoes. Um, and so I love playing in her band because I'm used to like being like the front man in my band. I didn't like uh, know what it was like to be like the right hand man of the front man or like the guitarist of the front man. Um, and now that I know what that's like. Um, I know how to invest my bandmates more. Um, I know kind of, you know, what like balance of like, you know, like autonomy and whatever the opposite would be that like, a, you know, a side man would want in a band. Um, and it also, it, it like uh, recharges my batteries because I love going out with my band. I love going on the road with my band, but I am our manager and I am our tour manager and I am often our publicist, like in between albums. I'm, um, you know, I'm often our producer. So it's just, you know, I play like, you know, like a lead guitar and I sing. It's a lot to, you know, like a juggle. And after like a couple of weeks on the road, you know, playing all those like roles, you know, my mind is completely fried. And then when I get to go out with Elizabeth on a run, my only job is to play guitar and harmonize and like not be a jerk and like help out when <laughs> I can. And it's so, purely musical um it's wonderful and then after a while when i begin to kind of i guess crave the spotlight or crave the like ability to just kind of like you know like choose what exactly we're like doing all the time you know like generally that's when you know whatever elizabeth run i'm on you know will come to a close and i'll go out again with andrew Leahy in the home set so it's just kind of a constant process of recharging my batteries and keeping me hungry and loving whichever mode i'm in you know, like front man or side man. Well, that makes sense. It's, it's, it's actually uh, dressing different sides of you. One is just the, the person who likes to play and the other one is the creative side, you know, and the, like you said, or the front person. Um, yeah. And I will say too, that Elizabeth is great about like investing all of us and allowing us, you know, like uh, to be us. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm playing any kind of role with her. I feel like I'm Andrew Leahy with her. It's like just another part of Andrew Leahy. And, uh, you know, I love, you know, I got the album that we made with her called Aftermath. I have it here behind me somewhere. Um, here it is, but it really invested us. Yeah. I love the, that's Elizabeth. That's so Elizabeth. I love that. Isn't it? Yeah. And the actual, I think it's a blue, you know, like a vinyl is quite lovely here. That's kind of cool. Oh, that's um, great. You know, it like, you know, it like, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of greatly like invested all of us in the band, like the fact that we got to play on this album and the fact that we got to work with, you know, like a Butch Walker as a producer, 
Um, so, I mean, I hope that I just always get to play with her and play with my band. I would love to kind of keep having that yin and yang for like the rest of my career. So American Static Volume 1, are you going to put out vinyl for that yourself? I thought about that. I think, I mean, given that it's an 18-track um project i think it would be a number of vinyls so i think like perhaps after volume two comes out in 2022 i might kind of collate or curate uh whatever the word is like you know like a greatest hits of the american static project and put out one vinyl as opposed to like three vinyls or whatever it would take for 18 songs like uh, you know like to fit on vinyl so during the pandemic you were doing these weekly concerts right you were streaming yeah the live streams the live yeah. streams is that where you were working through this material? It really was, yeah. Um, you know, we played a year's worth of weekly live streams every Thursday night. It was called Andrew Leahy Live and Online. And we had like 100 people who would watch live every week. And then like the episodes would go up onto the internet. And like each episode, you know, each you know, like a live stream would have like, you know, well, like, you know, like I guess maybe like a 2,000 like people who would watch it. And so we wanted to have a new show every week because we'd, you know, like people aren't going to keep coming back if it's like the exact same songs. Um, and so we had reason to work up all of these songs that I've been writing, like in the pandemic. And I think like uh, part of the reason that I had been writing everything in the pandemic was, you know, my crazy schedule um, had been, you know, ground to a halt. So, like if you look at, you know, I can look at, you know, kind of like my current week. So as an example of how crazy my schedule can be. So I just got home from an Elizabeth Cook run in Texas. Uh, my band leaves on Friday for like a week and a half long tour. We're practicing every day in the meantime. We're out for a week and a half. Uh, like the morning after we wrap up our tour in Miami, I fly out to Charleston and like I rejoin Elizabeth Cook on tour. Then after that ends, we come back to Nashville. I have another gig with my band in Nashville. Um, and like on top of that, I work as a music journalist, like full time, and I'm happily married to a wife who I want to also go <laughs> hang out with. So, um, it's just, it's, you know, it's constant plans. And my wife was in graduate school in Knoxville for the past, you know, like four years. And so like in the past, when I would wrap up a tour, I'd come home to Nashville, I'd water the plants, then I'd go, you know, off to Knoxville, you know, for like a couple of days. And when my tour would come up like a week or so later, I'd come back to Nashville. I'd water the plants, wash my clothes and go out on, on the road. You're making me tired, and, Andrew. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm exhausted always. And so when the pandemic happened, it happened to coincide with Emily's graduation and her, you know, like a relocation here to Nashville. Um, and so all of a sudden I was home all the time. Um, and I think... Um, like not having all the noise of that chaotic schedule allowed me to, well, like to be corny, to like hear the muse better. Um, and so I wrote a ton of songs, especially in the initial part of the pandemic, just um, a ton of songs. That's why we were able to put out or, you know, to like, you know, like record like a double album. That isn't, that isn't a thing that I'd normally be able to write, you know. When your schedule ground to a halt at the beginning of the pandemic, was it a shock to the system and was there sort of a transition where you had to regroup and then all of a sudden it started to gel? Uh, or did you just say, wow, this is great. I'm, I get to stay home for a bit. <laughs> um, it's honestly, it's, it's weird to admit it because I mean, clearly like the pandemic is horrible. Um, but like there was 
a measure of relief to it because like, especially in Nashville, you always, it's just, you know, a rat race and you feel like if you take one hour off just to relax and recharge your batteries, you're going to like fall back in line, you know? Um, so like there was a weird comfort in knowing that everybody in the music industry all went back to, you know, like to ground zero. And it didn't matter if you were on a major label. It didn't matter if you were independent. Um, it was all about how you made the most of your time at home. And once we began having those live streams and they began, you know, like to, you know, like to do well, um, and we realized we were good at it. Um, it was kind of galvanizing. It was like, Hey, when we don't have all the infrastructure around us, we can still make something out of this, you know? So, um, and also, you know, given what I went through with my brain surgery, I think, um, you know, I learned a lesson, you know, a while back that like a hard time can be good because it gives like a new perspective to like the normal, you know, it's like when, you know, like in 2019, when everything was like ordinary and normal, I think we would have all wished that we could have, you know, gone beyond that. I bet we were all like bored with the normal and like fed up with the normal, but now I would kill to go back to what it was like in 2019. Um, and like, that's another silver lining of any, of any like challenge like COVID-19 or like brain surgery. Once you get back to your normal, you realize how beautiful it is to like just exist. Yeah. I hear that from a lot of folks that, that they're really appreciating life a whole lot more. And they've also come out of all this with a, maybe a new perspective on life and incorporating some of the things they learned during their time off that maybe taking time for yourself is a good thing. You know, maybe, maybe we don't always have to be in, in that rat race every single day that maybe we're more creative when we take even just a month or two off and, and go do something different. And, and also being able to to spend time with people we care about because it's, we're often going like this with each other and it's hard to really, I mean, it's like my house has like never like been cleaner than it has been for like the past you know, you know year and a half. We you know like I replaced our blinds and our carpets and we like painted. Um, it's good. I would like to give a message to like all musicians out there. I think we should all like chill out a bit, maybe like take it back to like twenty percent so we can all enjoy life more. Um, you know, like I'll do it if you do it. How about that, musicians? I think everyone should do that. It's uh, yeah. I we you know we. We, of course, are in the same boat, and we're not touring musicians or anything like that, but um, we were in the music business, and everything we did came to a halt. And then, uh, you know, we're li- and living in the house together, and all of a sudden, your house is your sanctuary. So you pay a lot more attention to everything in your house and making sure you're set up to do all the things you like to do every day, because it's just, it's you in this house and maybe the backyard, <laughs> but that's what all it was there for a bit. Absolutely. And I think, I think one of the other, um, I don't know, you know, kind of cool parts about the pandemic, as weird as it is to like utter that phrase was I began playing a lot more piano. You know, I always, you know, I'm like an electric guitarist over an acoustic guitarist. I prefer electric guitar, but you know, that entails getting out your amp and getting like your guitar out of its case. And like, there's just, you know, kind of a process of that. Whereas my piano is in my living room. It's an old upright piano. Um, and when I was gone, I could never really play it all that much. And so when I would play it, you know, in years past, I would just kind of go to my usual, like rudimentary, whatever I would play, you know, whatever kind of chords. And then like over 2020 and early 2021, 
I was playing it a lot. It was easy, like to you know walk over there, like open it up and begin playing. And with our live streams, it was a good way to change up a song that perhaps we played last week as well. You know, like last week I played it on guitar. This week I can play it on piano. So uh, there's a lot of piano on the albums, on like you know on my new albums, which is a thing that you know would like never have happened really in any kind of large capacity on the previous releases. Do you tend to write on the piano or more on the guitar? Like normally on guitar, but um, on this project, um, it wasn't it wasn't like half and half, but it was maybe like a third on piano, which again is, you know, with me, it's unprecedented. And it's cool because, um, you know, I don't have the same go-to patterns on piano as I have on guitar. So um, we have a song on the new album called My Avalanche, which has this weird chord. I wish I was more of a music nerd, so I... I knew what it was. It's like an A chord with an F natural on top. Um, honestly, I took it from um, it happens in Mariah Carey's you know, like a vision of love. Um, I was like, what is that chord? And so, um, you know, I used like it on like a tune of ours called my avalanche. And that's like a, you know, I wouldn't even like, know like it would be like hard to even like finger that on a guitar, but on a piano it's easier. So now it's in one of our songs. My Avalanche, by the way, is one of my favorite songs on the album. I got to that oh, at, the, at the end, and it was such a treat. Very melodic, and it just—it's a beautiful song. I really enjoyed. Thanks. Really enjoyed. Yeah, and like the you know, it's like orchestral too, which isn't mm-hmm. again like that isn't what we would like do in the past. But our producer, his wife, is an amazing like a string player, and was on the road with Kanye West when he was you know on the road with like an all women you know like a string quartet or something. So. Our producer came up with an arrangement and yeah, we have like orchestral strings. Um, we also have that um, on a song on volume two as well. Now, so why the name American Static? Yeah, it came, it originally came from a book that my brother, who's a writer, had tried to write and he like abandoned it. I really liked it, just you know, the ring of it. Um, and to me, like the name, it has a couple of meanings. I mean, you know, like 2020 and 2021 have been, um, in like largely like immobile years, you know, I've been a, you know, a, like a static American. I haven't gone many places. So I have the past couple months, but like for like the bulk of that time, I haven't, um, you know, as a country, we, uh, you know, we've had some like static over the past year and a half, but I also think, um, you know, if you kind of go to like, a radio imagery, which like tends to like operate kind of like heavily in our world. Our last album airways was, you know, kind of like a tribute. to like rock and roll radio. If you think of like an old school, like stereo, you'd go in between like stations and you know, like you're in one station and then you have to go through this period of static. Then you get to the next one. It's almost like you have to go through this noise in order to get to clarity as well. So I think there's like a transitionary, um, connotation to the name American static. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's funny that the word static means noise, but it also means everything stops. So yeah, it's, it does. Yeah. It's odd. It's odd. Um, you know, but like really, you know, I liked how it sounded and I love my brother. I mean, he was a big influence on me as a kid. And so it's also a nod like, you know, to him and his art. So where did you record the album? With my buddy John Estes, who's a great musician, when I moved to Nashville originally, my like initial, you know, gig with anybody else's band was with a great writer named Courtney J. Um, and um, her band was amazing. 
and you know, it included a guy on base, you know, like a named John Estes, who was so good that he was like, you know, intimidating. Um, and then like years later, when I made uh, Airways with uh, producer Paul Ebersold, he wanted to bring in his rhythm section and my current, you know, uh, you know, my current like a roster of Andrew Leahy in the homestead hadn't coalesced around my current guys yet. And so I was like, yeah, sure. Like we can use, you know, your players if you want. And he brought in, you know, like, uh, John Estes again. And he not only played like uh, bass on that album, but he played keys. He was great at both. Um, and so I was always enamored with him as a musician. And then I heard some work he did, um, as a producer. He, um, he produced, um, you know, Kashina Sampson. He produced my friend, like, uh, Nick Pagliari, who's a Memphis native. Um, and I just went and, you know, like, I tracked one tune with him and realized that when you're, you know, when you work with a producer who's also a musician of that magnitude and that level of like versatility, you can add all kinds of stuff on the albums. Like that's how we now have like string arrangements on the album and just all kinds of things. And so we began recording with him. It took like a year and a half, obviously, because COVID happened. He has a home studio. He didn't want us at his like studio when COVID was just at its worst. Um, but um, I was glad that we were able like, uh, you know, like uh, to complete it. And I just kept having these like uh, brand new songs and it was already working well, working with him. So we just, you know, kept it going without really any plan of what the project was going to be. We just, you know, kept going until I knew that if I kept working with him, he was going to kill me. And I was like, you need a break from me for a bit and we can put out like a double album. It doesn't like have to be a quadruple album. It can just be a double. <laughs> Was it hard to narrow the songs down for the album? Albums? No, we did. I think we did 20 songs um, and, you know, kept 18. We did. We did put out one of those other uh, two songs, you know, you know, kind of as like a standalone song. It's a track called New Memories, 4202 Franklin. It's about my mother's battle with Alzheimer's. It's a lovely song, but it wasn't one that I wanted to, you know, get a request like for and like feel compelled to play it mm -hmm. every night. Cause it's also a song that you kind of have to like inhabit when you play it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to inhabit that song every night. Um, and the last song was, I think it was a request for a friend who had like basically, you know, like a uh, commissioned like the song. And so we did that. But um, like generally I don't even complete the song when I'm writing it, unless I think it's a keeper. Um, and we definitely don't like record a song unless we think it's a keeper. So Everything that we tracked, you know, we knew that we were, you know, you know, keeping and we were lucky in this time, you know, you know, given that we just had like, you know, when we were like recording it, we didn't you know, like uh, know when COVID was going to end. We didn't know when I was going to be able to go back on the road. And so the like uh, time restrictions that I'm used to on an album weren't, you know, weren't like uh, really there. And so like on every on every older album that I have, there's a couple tracks that I feel or like the best possible you know, performance of that song. And there's a couple of songs where I feel like the song itself is better than the recording that we got. Um, and on this album, we don't have any of that. We were able to just kind of keep at it until everything was at that high level that I wanted, which again, I think is why you know, at the end, I was like, I'm going to give you a break like from me. Cause I mean, we would do like, well, like 10 mixes on every song. Um, we were able to get like really particular, which I loved, but I think as a producer, um, it gets old after a while. Did you have any guest other artists on the album besides the members of your band? 
Yeah, so Sadler Vaden plays lead guitar on My Avalanche, like a song that you like. Um, he plays a great solo there. Um, Elizabeth Estes, who's my producer's wife, plays violin um, on My Avalanche and then on a couple tracks uh, on the next volume. Um, and this great Canadian guitarist named Ariel Posen, who used to be in a band called Brothers Landreth, and now he has his own career. He's an incredible writer and you know, like a vocalist as well. Um, he plays slide guitar on a track on volume one called Guilty Man. Um, but apart from that, it was just, it was us. And we didn't have a bass player at the time. And so John Estes played bass. So it was you know, like uh, me and my drummer, Dan Holmes, and my other guitarist, uh, Jay Dumachowski. Let's talk about a couple of the other songs, Shadows That Still Stretch. Tell me about that one. Yeah, that, um, you know, I realized, you know, in the wake of my brain operation, kind of where I go to lyrically. Um, it's kind of like, I guess it, it's almost kind of like a Springsteen thing. Um, you know, it's like these songs about like making like the most of your time while you have it. I guess you could call them carpe diem anthems or something. So that's what like that song is. It's just, um, you know, kind of like making like the most of like the daylight while it exists. But, um, you know, what, you know, and like knowing that it's going to go down, but just use it while it's there. Um, yeah, I love that one. What about Good Is Gone? That was another one I Good really gone. liked. I'm glad. That's, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that my wife um, was in Knoxville for a number of years in graduate school, uh, becoming a veterinarian. Um, and so, um, you know, my wife was in Knoxville. I was here at our place in Nashville. I was also with her in Knoxville. I was also on the road with Andrew Leahy in the homestead. I was also on the road with Elizabeth Cook. Um, so it was, you know, it was crazy. And the year that Emily enrolled at University of Tennessee was the year that my debut came out. And I played 180 gigs that year. So I was just always, always away. Um, and we had to become accustomed to like living apart from one another. And we had to become okay with it to a degree. So we became good at gone, which, um, again, it was, you know, we like had to become that it was, you know, like a needed, but it was all, you know, it's weird when you become, you know, adept at not like needing the presence of your spouse. And so I wrote that song like uh, right before Emily graduated and moved back. And I think it was easier for me to do so knowing that like the end of our um, weird, like geographic estrangement was coming to an end. So she, you're back together in the We're same place together. and do you, do you actually place. have a dog or a cat <laughs> since she's I a, got two cats two cats who are like uh, running around like you know kind of like uh, crazy animals while we're talking here um yeah well, and the cats would constantly go back and forth in that period where we were living like, apart um and they were good in the car but i'm definitely glad that i don't have to like drive like a two and a half hour drive with cats in the car like every week like i used to because that was that you know it didn't always work all that well. <laughs> no, I'm, it's, it sounds like it's great that you guys are actually back in the same place. You know, and another thing that you do that I just love is you do these jams where you're doing them for charity. Tell me about that. Yeah, those are um, those are great because, um, well, I assume that you're like referring to like the Traveling Mulberries uh, gig that we yep. had um, like this summer, which was who we raised money for. It was for East Can, which is... Um, East Canine Adoption Network, I guess, like an animal charity. 
Um, and we do a lot of that, you know, kind of like large gigs where there'll be some kind of like framework, you know, recovering songs by, you know, like, you know, like whoever, or like last week we had the album in like a release. We had a component of that where we played a bunch of like Halloween songs because, you know, it was like Halloween time. Um, and we get like a bunch of guests who come up and play with us. And for me, it allows me to, um, kind of live in both worlds of my musical career where I'm both like the front man of the band, I get to play a couple songs where like I'm the one in charge. And then I get to also back up other musicians, um, you know, using like uh, the traveling blueberries gig as an example, we had as our guests, uh, Butch Walker, we had Raul Malo of the Mavericks. We had Elizabeth cook. We had Carlene Carter. Um, we had a whole bunch of people. I don't you know, I mean to leave anyone out, but it's great to like, basically, you know, you join other people's bands for like two songs and you expand your like network and, and, you know, playing a gig like that is how I even, you know, cross paths with Elizabeth cook in the first place. You know, when Tom Petty passed away, a venue here in Nashville, the basement East had asked if, um, if Sadler Vaden and I would put together a last minute group to play a bunch, you know, of, you know, like uh, Tom Petty songs and um, admission was either free or all the money went to some charity. I forget, it was a couple of years ago, but Elizabeth Cook was one of our guests um, and things went well. And Elizabeth, you know, contacted me like that evening and was like, hey, and I was like, hey, I think you're awesome. And Liz was like, I think you're awesome. And I was like, I wanna play in your band. And Liz was like, all right. And like a month later, we were opening up for Driving and Crying in Atlanta. So it's a good, you know, it's a great way to expand your network and just kind of get out of your own bubble. You know, like I love, I love playing music with people and I don't often get to play with other front men and front women. Um, and that's why I love, you know, playing a gig like that. I get to play with like 10 of them in one night. Well, it sounds like you're in a really cool place. You're being able to uh, create, you are a writer, you're happily married, um, you're working with all yeah. sorts of cool people and doing great projects and collaborating with people. And just sounds like you're in a great place. And of course, the album is American Static, Volume One. It's out now on Mule Kick Records. And and then of course, this is just the teaser because you have another one coming out next year, which is going to be equally as good. I can't wait for that as yeah. well. And um, as always, Andrew, we love keeping in touch with you and um, love you as an artist. And um, can't wait to see you again here in Memphis. I love you guys. I love everybody who works with you. I've been, you know, like uh, lucky enough to cross paths with Robin a couple times um, here in town, and I miss y'all. I'm glad. I'm glad like everything is going well with you guys and like beginning again. And uh, yeah, all right. I miss y'all. We'll see you very soon. Thanks, Andrew. All right, Amy. See ya. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Nashville-based artist Andrew Leahy. Andrew Leahy and the Homestead's latest album, American Static Volume 1, is available now everywhere good music is sold or streamed. Visit andrewleahymusic.com to learn more. And remember, you can visit diddytv.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? 
problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.